This is DMOU, Destination Marketing Organization University, the DMO Sectors Podcast, and I'm your host, Bill Geist. DMOU is where you hear the best and the brightest in the destination marketing space, sharing innovative and compelling stories to inspire you to take your destination and organization to the next level. The format for our conversations on DMOU is elegantly simple. It's three questions and a bonus round. And today's episode is sponsored by our friends at Destinations International. Next up on the event calendar is Fall Learning Week, which is comprised of three co-located summits, as well as CDMEA classes. DMO pros will immerse themselves in realigning perspectives on post-pandemic recovery from an operational perspective through the Business Operations Summit. Others will renew their commitment to welcoming belonging and inclusivity with the EDI Summit. And then others will redefine their organization's role within the community through the Advocacy Summit, all happening between October 9th and 12th in Little Rock, Arkansas. And you can score bundle discounts for each summit. Registration is now open at destinationsinternational.org slash events. And now it's on to our show. Brooke Kaufman is the president and CEO of Visit Rapid City, where she leads the charge to grow the local visitor economy. Through her diverse career, Brooke has launched small businesses, grown large ones, and authored a popular blog for female runners called Onward, which fittingly is a no excuses approach to running and life. Prior to joining Visit Rapid City, she was the CEO of Visit Casper and a commissioner at Natrona County, Wyoming. When she's not working, you can find her reading, trying a new bread recipe, or exploring the trails in the hills. Brooke Kaufman, welcome to DMOU. Bill Geis, thanks for having me. Oh, absolutely. And hey, it was so great to see you at Destinations International's annual convention last month. And thank you again for your kind invitation to keynote the DMA West Leadership Summit and then participate in that blazing cool panel with Berkeley Young and David Holder. Before we get to your questions, how did you come up with this idea of putting three from the outside competitive, but in reality friends, on stage together in front of the Leadership Summit? So I know you don't like this word, and we talked about this briefly, but I just felt like all of you are legends in the space in some way. And I think DMOs really are charged or really that we have to kind of go through the weeds and figure out, do we need a strategic plan? Do we need a stewardship plan or do we need a master plan? And I feel like you three are leaders in the space to different pieces of those plans. So I I just thought what a cool idea to get everybody in the room to have the conversation about what's the difference. You know, we really learned a lot of things that you guys don't like that we do sometimes in RFPs or how we go silent. So I think we learned a lot, but I just think you guys each brought a unique perspective and can really help CEOs make better decisions with the money we're giving about where we're going, you know? And I think that was one of the interesting things, and I didn't see it coming until it actually happened on stage. But as the three of us talked about the RFPs that we look at and say, nah, and move on. And it's like, I'm sure that just shocked many of the people in the room that we aren't all hanging on every word of the RFPs that are out there because some are just so onerous. So thank you for that opportunity to kind of share that this is a partnership for those of us that are on this side of the equation and those on the DMO side. And um, it was funny, the night before at one of the receptions, somebody said, so do you guys all get along? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah, actually we do. We're, We're all really good friends, even though we do compete for the business. So you're getting your own share of speaking and consulting gigs as much of this nation 
prepares for the 2024 total eclipse of the sun next April. You presided over one of the best eclipse experiences and learned a ton about how consumers react during the 2017 eclipse when you were in Casper. So without negatively impacting your ability to continue to speak around the nation, give us a taste of what those of us in the path of totality need to know. Yeah, Bill, thanks for the opportunity. It's been a lot of fun. If you'd have told me five or six years ago uh, that when we organized Wyoming Eclipse Festival that I would be on the speaking circuit and be known as like the Eclipse Lady, I wouldn't even have known what that meant. So it's just been <laughs> such a theme of following the thread. So anyways, I would say a couple different things and it's been neat. I've been in Arkansas speaking and I've been in Missouri. I just was on a webinar with Cleveland a couple of weeks ago as they prepared. And right. I, I saw a couple that. things I would say, they're coming anyway. So whether your community is going to prepare or you're not, it doesn't matter. People will show up. So I think it's really up to you what kind of an experience you want your residents to have and what you want your visitors to have, because there's people who are very skeptical. You know, I wouldn't walk across the street to see this thing. And then there's people who are very sensational and say, you know, millions of people are going to go to small town America to view this thing. So I think somewhere in the middle is probably the true story. But a couple of things that I really think are important for anybody who is on the line or thinking about going to somewhere in the center line to see it in April is a couple of things. School is going to be in session. It was not in 2017. So you've got to figure out what you're going to do with your kiddos and how you're going to move them around. Mm -hmm. Because the thing that we really missed was traffic. So, you know, the five days leading into this thing, people come at a pretty elegant pace into your community. And then the eclipse happens and then they all leave at the same time. So I would say a lot of the conversations I've had around the U.S. is how do you work through moving traffic and VIPs and, you know, just so many other things that you wouldn't think about because you're like, hey, I'm just going to look at the sky and go to this place and all the things. And then all of a sudden, you know, you've got a 10 hour road trip home, which would normally take you three and a half or four. And that's those are real logistical issues. So I would say a lot of things that are it's such an exciting and cool opportunity, too. So I don't want to overshadow that or eclipse that right with all the fearful things, but it's a neat once-in-a-lifetime experience, too, for so many people. So we've been talking with a number of destinations that are going to be in the path of totality. And one of the issues, and I know that this happened, I do believe, in St. Joe, Missouri, in the last one in 2017, was that it was overcast. And, I mean, outside of the fact that it gets dark, you're not really seeing the sun disappear. How do you prepare for that? I mean, the, one of the communities we were talking to, we said, you know, you should make sure that your convention center space is, is available that day so that there is an opportunity if it rains or if anything else goes against the grain, that you can have a secondary experience so people don't go away totally empty-handed. The weather, especially in April, is much more variable than it was in the summer of 2017. So you bring up a really good point, and I think that's why we took the approach of creating a five-day festival, and that way people who came from all over the world, we saw people from six continents and 160 countries or more, and that's why you know we wanted to give them the whole experience, so if for some reason it was overcast, they went home with an experience anyway. But what I will say is people, if they are sincere really committed eclipse chasers, they're going to be on the move. So they're watching the weather. So if they pick your destination and two or three days leading up, it looks like it's overcast or cloudy skies or looks like it's going to rain. They're going to look for anywhere else on the path to fly their plane, take their motor coach, right? They're going to be on the move to really maximize the opportunity to see it. So I do appreciate what you said. Absolutely have some things for them to do. But if they're very sincere and that's really why they're here, they're going to figure it out. Kind of like tornado chasers, right? 
<laughs> yes. You know, we landed 191 airplanes at Natrona County International Airport that morning. And everyone wow. had a different flight plan as a backup. You know what I mean? They just, they wouldn't have come. They would have gone somewhere else. Yeah. yeah we were working with one destination that I got to say, I was so taken with the mayor of this community because he saw in the fact that they were going to be in the path of totality and they were close to a pretty major media market. He said, that media market is going to come here and we're going to be on display for the entire world because this is going to be the closest this media market has to an eclipse. And he says, we've got a blighted area downtown that I need to clean up. And he goes, we're going to clean this thing up because company's coming. And I love the fact that he's using an event like this, which is going to be an international event to motivate people to say, let's fix these two or three blocks. We're now probably, what are we, nine months away. So I'm not sure that you can move quite that fast. I mean, he was talking about this last year. But how do you take advantage of something like this that will be an international visible event and turn it into something positive for the community? Oh, hey, I think you bring up a good point. So the eclipse was a catalyst for around $38 million in private investment in our community leading up to it. So it doesn't really, mean, yeah, oh yes. It doesn't mean that those investments wouldn't have happened at a different time down the road, but trust me when I tell you that building owners and, you know, influencers in that community, they knew it was coming and they knew that we were expecting tens of thousands of people and what a better opportunity to get that business off the ground and moving. So we finished our downtown, it, it's called David Street Station. So the public square got finished and then that, you know, prompted restaurants around the area. They cleaned up a lot of old buildings. It just, it was unbelievable what it did to that downtown core. And the, the eclipse was a catalyst, right? So it'd be no different, I suppose, in a community getting ready for a Super Bowl or a large sporting yeah, event. Right. They're going to get all this investment and all these projects done in time. And then the community obviously benefits long term. Yeah, but Super Bowls happen in major markets. The beauty of a total eclipse of the sun is it can happen in any town in America if you're just lucky enough to be in the path of totality, right? And so I think there's just huge opportunities for these communities to clean up, get ready, and then have some really cool sense of place opportunities after everybody goes home. Oh, I think you're absolutely right, Bill. So, and honestly, so many people are like, well, where should I go to view it? And I'm like, well, all you really have to do is walk out the door and look up. I mean, you don't have to be in a parking <laughs> right. lot or a convention facility. You can pull over literally on the side of the road and look up and see the thing. So it's been really funny as that so many people don't know what to expect. So I remember when we were going through this and even in communities that I've been in, you know, people don't know what time of day it is. So a lot of people will say, well, do I have to get up in the middle of the night? And I'm like, well, you know, it's at 1141 in the morning. So I don't know what you're going to be doing in the middle of the night, but like, whatever. So I think. Like there's all these unknowns until your community goes through it. So that's I th one of the cool things about this has just been, you know, we just had this in 2017 when we were preparing in 2017, the United States hadn't seen an eclipse since 1979. And you know what the media was like in 1979. We just, yeah. it wasn't the same. We just didn't have the same access to the same information. So it's been cool to see communities really lean in and get prepared and 
you know, some are like, do I really need to take this seriously? And others like we're taking this darn serious. So it's going to be fun to hear what the outcomes are. And the beauty of a total eclipse of the sun is you don't need to wear sunglasses because our former president proved that. (laughs) But you better wear eclipse glasses or you're going to call Bill Geisman and tell him you fried your eyeballs. One of the two. (laughs) I I do. I do want to say one funny thing. I think people will really appreciate this. We were really worried about who it was going to attract and who was going to come. And our city manager said, man, if, if too many people come and I can't get a fire truck down 4th Street, Brook, I'm shutting I-25. So a lot of fear because there were so many things that were unknown. But as we look back at the incident reports, the only people who got arrested that entire weekend were locals. Really? So all the visitors who came and all the eclipse chasers and all the international, all these things that we were so worried about. And wouldn't you know it, it's the dang locals. Yeah. Well, there you go. At least it wasn't the visitors. So let's switch gears completely. When you headed visit Casper, you chose to run for public office. What motivated you to take that chance? Because politics and destination marketing sometimes can be very uncomfortable bedfellows. What motivated you to take that chance and how did it impact your time at the helm of the Casper visitor industry? So I did it, Bill, honestly, because I wanted tourism to have a seat at the table. So I was tired of always having to go to our elected and with my handout or hope that somebody was looking at our agency favorably or the projects that we were on. You know, there was a lot of motivation on my side to see money funneled into certain projects that would help drive visitation. And it's it's one thing to sit on the other side of the table and present to your elected officials and tell them the story and hope that they want to invest in your ski lodge or want to make sure that your trails get groomed for biathlon or downhill or whatever. And it's another thing entirely to sit on the other side of the table and really start to influence decisions in your destination from that perspective. So I loved both. And I loved that tourism really then had a seat at the table in a way that maybe they never had. I feel like we accomplished a lot in those spaces. Were there times that it was uncomfortable and I had to recuse myself? Absolutely. If a board member wanted to be accounted to a a county board, like there were all kinds of things, but we had a really strong county attorney who every time we just walked through, is this something I can be involved in or it's something I can't? So I encourage everyone to run for office. And I know so many people have said, you're crazy, you're crazy, but it's one of the fastest ways I know to get to the table and really start to have some influence. During your time as a commissioner, did people view you, maybe other commissioners, as you know someone who is a special interest, who is not looking out for the community? I mean, that would be the fear that I would see is you find your way onto the board and everybody's looking at you like, okay, you got an agenda. Not that they don't but that yours, because of your paid position and how you make your living, is more obvious than their agenda. Was that ever an issue? You know, as a commissioner or as any elected official, you have a thousand issues on any given day. So you better, if you're going to run for office, you better care about a whole lot of things. So tourism and anything that would have been connected to tourism was maybe you know, three or 4% of the overall. I mean, I sat for days in board of equalization hearings over property taxes that had nothing to do with tourism. So I would say no, I would say the more interesting conversation, and I hope this doesn't offend any of the listeners, the more interesting conversation is when you're the only female, right? Mm -hmm. So do you, do you feel like you have to work harder to have the same level of respect from 
staff or the community, right? Do you have to, do you, like, you have to hustle harder for it? So that would probably be a totally different podcast, but never really a negative at all. I would say, if anything, a lot of work. Yeah. And as Tavis has told me, he goes, actually, some of his compatriots on his county board now look to him and say, thank you for the intel. We didn't know that. And so it, it really doesn't need to be a, you know, point counterpoint, you know, one special interest versus another that you're actually bringing something valuable to the table. Oh, hey. And I think we might take a teeny bit of heat for that, but nine times out of 10, somebody runs for a commissioner seat because they care about a road. That's contentious for people. So right. <laughs> I feel like we, I didn't get any of that, but yeah, Tavis is great too. And I, I haven't heard how he's doing in Waterloo, but I was delighted to see that he won. What a cool deal. Yeah. And I loved when we were at DMA West together, somewhere along the line during that panel discussion, it came up about, you know, whether those of us in destination marketing should be supporting candidates. And I I loved it that you instantly said yes. Yeah. (laughs) Because you come at it from a completely different perspective. And I think so many of us are nervous about writing a check because what does that mean if that individual loses? And the opponent who didn't get a check wins. Yep. And does that turn into an issue that ultimately means the DMO is in the crosshairs? So I appreciate that too. And I think local races are a bit stickier. So we just went through a mayoral race here. I didn't feel like I could write a check for that very reason, even a personal check. And obviously my DMO did not get behind a candidate because there are situations that you can't. But I think I'd been in the market like two weeks and I saw the writing on the wall at the, at the state level. And I thought, man, there's some candidates that are really hitting hard for tourism. Win or lose, they get my money. So didn't hesitate there. Yeah. But yeah, I think, and everybody listening to this would know when it's appropriate and when it isn't. But boy, $500 or $200 can make a real difference in a local race. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So you're about 18 months into your leadership of Visit Rapid City which is a DMO that was helmed by two homegrown leaders for over 40 years. Julie was the original CEO. Then it went to Michelle. Then Julie comes back. As a non-native, how did you set out to build trust and culture with local government, with partners, with board, with staff? This was a whole new thing for Visit Rapid City. You know, I think... The neat part is they were ready for a change. I think that's why they used a search firm and said, hey, we're going to really look at our opportunities. So I think that helps when you come into a destination where people aren't expecting, hey, you've got to be exactly like Julie or Michelle, which was super helpful. But one of the things even right out of the gate is even with the team before I started, I insisted that they all go through PDM with Destinations International Mm -hmm. because even early on, I knew I've got to invest in them. I've got to see where they are in understanding the context of the industry. I want them to know my sole role with them is get them where they're going in their life. Where Whatever you want to do in your career is great, but it's my job as your leader to help you get there. And then the other thing on the like on the city and the elected side is just almost immediately I really sought out opportunities to serve our city government because I know the city is critical to our DMO on a lot of levels. So I sought out a, an appointment to the Planning and Zoning Commission because I knew I wanted to get close to the city planning department. I needed to know public works. I want to know our city council because there's all kinds of intersections for us. So. I would say that's the biggest opportunity I've seen so far is to really be new in a community, not know a soul, really not have a clue of how to navigate things. I'm like, get in there and serve. And from that point, you can figure it out. And that's 
that's in the first 18 months, I'd, I'd say that's probably what's really given me strong footing to continue the work. Yeah. And for those of us that are still hesitant to take the path that you and Tavis took in getting elected to be part of it, I think that there's something really powerful in what you just said about getting involved in planning and zoning and some of those committees. I know I served when I was in Madison on a number of committees that were really kind of under the radar, and yet it ingrained me with city staff, because I don't think the city council knew I was doing any of this stuff, but staff knew that I cared, and they spend more time with city council than I do. So there was that side of it, but also that you bring the voice of the visitor, you bring the voice of our sector to the conversation, which oftentimes gets untold because our sector is busy. (laughs) We're working 18 hours a day and we don't have time to do this kind of stuff. And so having a CEO of a DMO engaged in that kind of area, it doesn't put you in the political fray but it definitely sets you up within the community. You know, you bring up a really good point too. And I think about the things like so far, we have really started the conversation with the city about ordinances for short-term rentals mm-hmm. and the planning and zoning commissions right in the middle of that. Right. Right. Same yeah. thing with stewardship initiatives that they're taking on or how do they rewrite zoning rules and regulations that really apply and take those things into consideration. So there's no better place to be than at that table right now as we look to those things that are super important to the visitor economy. So I wouldn't know any other way to do it. I mean, I could call the city planner and say, hey, I'd like to tell you what I think, but who am I? Right. You know, but instead, and every other Thursday morning, I'm there at 7 a.m. and we know the names of kids and coffee that we like and all the things. And I'm like, hey, this is what the visitor industry thinks about these things. And they're super open to hearing the feedback. So I appreciate that we're having this conversation, even if it's civic groups, right? So even if it's Rotary or Kiwanis or however it is that you're of service, those opportunities really just create an opportunity for us to be really strong ambassadors of this industry that we're in. So one of the things that I think is fascinating is now you're, you know, an independent nonprofit DMO, but more aghast at Irving is a city department. And there was a time that she was contemplating, should we become an independent? Would it make more sense? And ultimately, the decision was no, that we're going to stay with the city. And today, you know, fast forward 10, 15, 20 years, she'll say, we never would have built the convention center and we never would have built the entertainment district had we not been a city department. Because every week I'm sitting in a room with public works, with planning, zoning, with all of these aspects that needed to be aligned for us to do what we did. And had I been an independent, it would have been tougher. But what you're saying is, is, okay, as an independent, you can kind of bridge that gap. You don't need to be in the city department meetings every week, but if you're on the commission meetings and you're a part of that at 7 a.m., you're building those relationships that pave the way for really cool things to happen in your community. So we should just honor Mora for a minute because she's always 10 steps ahead of us. <laughs> I love that. She, I mean, that's really what she was. She was a peer to the people she needed to be a peer with to get the things done that their community really needed. Yeah. I love her insight into that where 
if you aren't that, right? So many people think it's a negative to be involved with their city or city department. And it's not. I mean, there's so many benefits to that too. And here's just another way, but if you're doing it from the outside, but I love that that's exactly the same thing though, that you're saying is she just was peer to peer with them, right? Yeah. Toe to toe, every meeting, every time. Yeah. She can walk down the hall and say, Hey, I got a question for you. How do we make this work? And that's not going to happen when you're not a city department. Now I'm not in a million years going to say city department DMOs are the best possible choice because I think there's a lot of negatives, but the positive is you can make things happen really, really fast within city government. So let's move to your bonus round question. You ran your first marathon, which, you know, wow, I, I couldn't go a mile without puking. You ran your first marathon in 2015 in Denver. And at that altitude, that is not an easy first attempt. In the months leading up to that race, you started a blog called brooksfirstmarathon.com. It began with one reader, but tell us what happened next. Oh, yeah. So I was really into this whole thing. And I'm like, well, if I'm going to suffer through this, I'm going to tell the story and I'm going to tell the truth. This is terrible. (laughs) So I literally sat in a hotel on a trip and bought on WordPress a $99 blog that I bought the URL, tied it all together myself. It's the ugliest thing you ever saw in your whole life. And I was like, I'm going to tell the story. So every day for 125 days, posted to it. And it did start, like you said, with one reader who was a good girlfriend. And every time, every day I'd post and there'd be a little ding back. And she'd be like, go you, Kaufman. Like, woohoo. <laughs> it was never a, a project that was intended to be what it became. It was a project that I just genuinely fell in love with, right? I just wanted to tell the story and it didn't matter to me if one person read it or no one did. And turned out to go a lot farther than that. But I think that's probably where I, if you, I had less attachments to the outcome, it didn't matter. And that's probably what made it so cool. So then that built into the bigger online service for women runners, correct? Yeah. So let's finish the story and I'll, I'll try not to kill it. But for 125 days, blogged, obviously crossed the finish line. It was very messy. It was very self-deprecating. Learned a whole bunch of things, told the truth, all the things. So by the time I get to the race, you know, there's almost 40,000 followers on Facebook and the blog's got tens of thousands of readers because I think they're all like, this girl is a dip. <laughs> and if she crosses the finish line, it'll be a miracle. Like it was the funniest thing I've probably ever done in my whole life. So that turned into, then the audience was so big that you had to, then I got into triathlons and then I did half Ironmans. Like I just had to keep feeding this beast that I had created, right? So it turned into, we turned the blog into a book and started running groups for women all over the world where we would have online meetups or we'd meet up and run a race in Minneapolis or we all ran the Duluth Marathon and it just turned into its own thing. And I think that's what happens in your life when you just follow the thread and you don't necessarily have to have an outcome. It was a hobby, right? It made a teeny bit of money. It paid enough money to pay for the blog and the hosting and all the things. But oh, what a cool journey when you just say yes and allow it to unfold. Brooke, thank you so much for coming on the show. We love to offer sector veterans the opportunities to impart their wisdom on DMOU, but we are just as, if not more, committed to sharing the stories of the individuals like you that are next-gen leaders in our space, and you certainly qualify in that category. We can't wait to see what's next for Brooke Kaufman. So thank you so much for being on the show, and we can't wait to see you down the line. Bill, I'm humbled, honored, and grateful. Thank you so much for the opportunity. All right. Thank you so much. 
That's it for this edition of DMOU. Tell your friends and peers this is where the best and the brightest come to share their stories. It's DMOU.com. And thanks again to our sponsor, our friends at Destinations International. Next up on the event calendar is Fall Learning Week, which is comprised of three co-located summits, as well as CDME classes. DMO pros will immerse themselves in the Business Operations Summit, also the EDI Summit, and the Advocacy Summit, all at the same time, October 9th through 12th in Little Rock, Arkansas and you can score bundle discounts for each summit. Registration is now open at destinationsinternational.org slash events. DMOPros.com is where you're gonna find links to our services for the DMO sector, links to the Z News, position papers on board diversity and a new model for destination development, the book Destination Leadership and the biggest DMO job board on the planet, plus access to past episodes of DMOU. That's DMOPros with a Z.com. Executive producer of DMOU is Terry White, And this is a production of DMO Pros. I'm your host, Bill Geist. Until next time.